I'm grateful for my parents for a lot of ways, but one of the ways in which I'm grateful that they were intentional in their parenting was how they taught me about money and about generosity. So I grew up on a poultry farm, and so as I grew up, there was lots of ways to go and do some jobs. So uh, even when I was a kid, I started out with really simple things like sweeping out rooms and washing feed pans for the turkeys and and uh, doing basic chores with my dad first and then on my own. And my parents would start to pay me when I started doing these jobs $4 an hour, which I thought was amazing as a little kid. And as I got older, the company started to, to pay me and started to increase slowly as I got older and started doing more complex things around the farm. But one of the things my parents taught me very early on was the importance of generosity and the importance of giving. And so they actually taught me about the principle of tithing at a very early age. Tithing, if you're not sure what it is, the the word tithe sounds like the Hebrew word for tenth. And so the practice of tithing is giving 10% of one's income back to the Lord. And so they would sit down with me and say, okay, you just received a check for $42.18. So what is 10% of that? And we would move the decimal place over. I would take my little marker and move it over and $4.11. So around that $4 or $5. And they said, you set this aside to give to the work of the church. And so that's what they taught me very early on. And I'm really grateful they did because I think that uh, implementing the practice of tithing as an adult would be a whole lot harder because you've got all the bills to pay and you've, you've got, you know, a lot more obligation on your money. Um, But even saying that, tithing today is not an especially common practice. There's some statistics that I found about this. Uh, A Barna study in 2017 found that 95% of millennial U.S. Christians do not tithe. In fact, only 1% of millennial U.S. Christians tithe to a local church. If you look at the older generation, the generation of elders, they found that 85% of elders do not tithe and 7% of them tithe to a local church. Uh, another study, which is slightly more optimistic, found that 10 to 25% of a normal congregation give 10% of their income or more to the church. And yet another study found that an average Christian gives 2.5% of their income to the local church. And for evangelical Christians, that goes up a little bit to about 4%. So it's not a practice that is actually widely adopted. And according to those stats, most of you listening don't have that practice of tithing 10%. So the question that confronts us today as we look at the scriptures is, should tithing be something that all Christians should be doing? Is this something that the scriptures teach as something that is a command, something that all Christians ought to do? Because if it is, then we have to talk about how are we going to obey that command, or how are we going to deal with our disobedience if we're not obeying that command? I want to present uh, what we talk about today on tithing like this. Tithing is an open-handed issue when it comes to Christianity. So you remember a few weeks ago, Bobby was preaching from Ephesians 4 on the common beliefs that unite us, and he had the Lego blocks on the table and said, these are the foundational beliefs that we all agree on that bring us unity in our faith. Tithing is not one of those foundational things. In fact, if you were to do a Google search, and Google is not always your most trusted source for theological information, but proves the point here. If you were to do a Google search of should Christians tithe, you will find lots of articles on both sides. And these articles are written by biblical scholars and New Testament scholars, some of them saying, yes, Christians today should be tithing 10% of their income. And others will say, no, tithing is not a practice that the New Testament prescribes for us. They will all agree that the Old Testament law includes this prescription to tithe, this command to tithe, 
but they will disagree as to whether or not that command is still in force uh, in the New Testament and beyond. And so that's how I want to present it. As we go through the scriptures today, I'm going to present several of them to you and say, this is how people who think tithing is required understand this passage. And this is how people who don't believe tithing is required understand this passage. And at the end, I'll give you my perspective on it. But this is what I want to say at the front. Even if tithing is an open-handed issue, generosity is not. The New Testament is very clear that we are to be generous people. Whether or not we ascribe to a 10% tithe or not, generosity is something that is commanded of us. And so here's our big idea today is God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. We'll see that in 2 Corinthians a little bit later on. Now, two caveats as we start today. Number one, if you are not a believer in Christ or not a part of our church, I want you to know up front, I'm not asking of anything of you financially. Okay, there's a perception of the church. We saw this earlier in COVID when churches couldn't meet and there would be some, some Christians who were saying, we really want to meet together. And the response from non-Christians on social media, I saw it many times, was you just want to meet so you can pass the offering plate around. Like churches are just concerned about money. They're greedy. That's why they want to meet again in person. Uh, and that's not my heart in any of this today. If you're not a part of our church, I, we don't expect anything from you. If you are part of another church, I expect I, I would encourage you to apply what we learned today to your local church. That said, if you are a part of Ross Road Community Church, I do want to encourage you to apply this to your giving to our local church, to the work of God here at Ross Road. Uh, I, I will tell you that again that we are in a season of the year in which we're trying to catch up to our budget, so there's extra giving that we're asking of you right now. And so I'm asking you to consider what the scriptures say and to take this to the Lord in prayer and say, how can you support the work of our church financially? And I know that many of you do this very generously already. And so if that's you, you just need to take this morning as an affirmation of your obedience to what the Lord is saying to you. Okay, so let's look at several scripture passages that talk about tithing. We're actually going to start way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Starting in verse 2, this is what it says. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So what do we learn here about tithing? Well, we learn here that even at the very beginning, these are the third and fourth people that ever walked the face of the earth. Even at the very beginning, there is an understanding that there is some sort of obligation on their part to give back to the Lord. Now, we don't know if there's a percentage involved here or, or, or anything like that, but we see on the part of Cain and Abel that there is a recognition that God had blessed them with flocks and with crops, and they were to give back to the Lord some percentage of that. So that's the first thing we notice. Now, people who believe that tithing is an eternal principle that still applies to us today will say this is evidence that right from the very beginning, the idea of tithe was embedded into people and into God's relationship with people. People who don't believe that the tithe is still prescriptive for us today will say that, that this was uh, just a, a one-off kind of example, uh, but that the tithe really was bound to the Old Testament law. That's where the actual command came in. Um, so what, what else do we see from this story? We see that God is happy with one offering, but not with the other. What's that about? Uh, I think the key here is in the word of the firstborn from the flock. This is what Abel brought. He brought some of the first. 
to the Lord. Tithing is sometimes referred to as the principle of firsts because it's actually bringing to the Lord the first of what he has blessed us with. It's not bringing the leftovers or whatever we can manage. It's actually saying at the beginning, I'm going to refer to uh, the, the, the very first back to the Lord. So if we were to, to visualize this, so we would say, if I was to give you 10 loonies, which loony belongs to the Lord? Well, it's the very first one. Before you even receive the second one, the first one has been devoted to the Lord. Now, we want to guard against legalism in all of what we talk about today, because that's a very real danger when it comes to tithing. But the idea is that the first is given back to the Lord, whereas Cain just brought some of the fruit of the soil. And so Abel honored God by bringing the first, and Cain just brought whatever he could manage. And that seems to be why God was happy with one and not with the other. Uh, in Genesis 14, we see this kind of odd story between Abraham and a guy named Melchizedek. A Abraham had just been in this battle and had won a victory. And this guy, this king named Melchizedek comes to Abraham and they have this interaction. And it ends up that Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he owns. Now, it's kind of unclear why in that story, why Abraham does this. But the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament refers back to this story and calls Melchizedek a priest of the Most High God. And so there's this understanding on Abraham's part, it seems, that he's giving 10% of what he owns back to the Lord. In uh, Genesis 28, you see Jacob having a dream. And God says to him, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you land, and there's going to be a nation that descends from you. And Jacob wakes up, and in his, his gratitude and in this overwhelming sense of everything that God was about to do for him, he says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything that I earn. So these are pre-law examples of people who gave uh, a percentage of what they had to the Lord. Now, when we get to the law, we see the idea of tithing being prescribed very clearly. Now, you might remember the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. God brings them out in dramatic fashion, brings them to Mount Sinai, and God's giving Moses the Ten Commandments and the whole Old Testament law. And as a part of that law, this is one of the things that the Lord says in verse 30 of Leviticus chapter 27. He says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, we see this built on a little bit more. God says, when you've entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. So set aside the first fruits and bring it to the, the, the house of the Lord. Now, Old Testament scholars, as they comb through all the references to tithing in the Old Testament, actually think that there was three different kinds of tithes that were asked of the Israelites. The first was a tithe that was brought to the priests and to the work of the temple. So the Levites, who were the priestly people, didn't actually inherit any land, but they were to be compensated for that by everybody else bringing the first fruits, the first 10% to the temple so that they would have something to eat and so that they would have something to sacrifice to the Lord. Secondly, there was a festival tithe. So there were certain celebrations that God commanded the Israelites to observe every year. And part of the tithe was to bring together all of the resources that were needed to celebrate those festivals. And then thirdly, every third year, there was a tithe that was to be given to the Levites, to sojourners, to the fatherless, to the widows, for poor people as a special kind of offering to them. If you add all of these things up, Old Testament scholars are a little bit divided as to how much God was actually asking the Israelites to give. It doesn't seem like it was just 10%. In fact, some estimates say it might have been as high as 
of everything that the Israelites produced in this agrarian society, so it was mostly in crops and, and animals, uh, this 23%, up to 23% was given back to the Lord. And so people who say that tithing is actually not prescribed for, for Christians now would say, if we're actually going to be faithful to what the Old Testament teaches about this, we should be telling people to give more than 10%, not just a 10% tithe. Now, the most famous passage about tithing in the Old Testament is found in the book of Malachi. And this is what God says there, starting in verse 6 of Malachi 3. He says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God responds, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God responds, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So God's saying, don't rob me by not bringing the full amount of the tithe into the storehouse. Uh, interesting language that God uses here. Usually God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But here, when it comes to generosity and giving back, he says, no, test me in this. Test me. Give me the, 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 the 10% that I'm asking for, the tithe that I'm asking for, and I will pour out this blessing upon you. Tithing is actually a test of how much we trust God. If we give away that first amount of our income, do we trust that God will provide for us and our needs with whatever is remaining? I said to Jenny one time several years ago, we were doing that thing where you compare yourself with other people and wonder why they're so far ahead of you because you never compare yourself with people who are behind you. It's always with people who are ahead of you. And I said something like, you know, maybe we're not getting as ahead as some of the other people we know who are our age because of tithing, right? Like if we were able to save that money instead of giving that money away, we would be equal with them. And a few days later, a few weeks later, I, I remember that comment. I was kind of convicted by it because I thought that, that's not how God's economy works. In fact, I wonder if we weren't tithing, what kinds of blessings we would not be experiencing in our lives because we weren't being generous with our money. And that doesn't mean a financial blessing. We need to be careful about prosperity gospel here. It's not the case that if we will be generous with our money and we'll have enough faith and pray enough, God will give us all of the things that we want. But the scripture is clear that God honors generosity and he blesses those who are generous. And so maybe if we weren't being generous, if we weren't giving, maybe we'd be experiencing a lot of relational conflict. Or maybe we'd be having challenges in other ways. Maybe we would have a lot of financial stress if we weren't giving. I don't know. But God says that, there is, that he honors those who are generous. In fact, Jesus says that, that those who are generous are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. So even if there's not a reward in the here and now, there are treasures in heaven being stored up because of people's generosity. 
2 Corinthians, Paul says something similar in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you are generous, there will be a generous reward that the Lord will give to you. So that's the Old Testament. Let's move now to the New Testament. What what does the New Testament actually say about this practice of tithing? And the answer is surprisingly little. Uh, One instance is uh, where Jesus addresses it in Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are a self-righteous group of people, and he's actually tearing a strip off them. This is what he says in verse 23. He says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, when we talk about tithing from this verse, we first of all need to recognize that tithing isn't Jesus' main concern in this verse. Though he brings it up, he's actually trying to get across the point that the Pharisees are missing the point. That their their focus on the minutia of the law is actually distracting them from the intent and the heart of the law. And so Jesus is trying to tell them, you guys are missing the point. You're, You're seeing the trees, but you're missing the forest. Now, Jesus talks about how they're tithing mint, dill, and cumin. These are three spices that were debated among Pharisees and other Jewish people then as to whether or not the tithe actually applied to these things. You know, they said the tithe applies to our crops from the field and and to our animals, but does it actually really apply to the spices? Like, do I need to tithe from my vegetable garden kind of thing? And the Pharisees were saying, well, look at us. We are so holy that we are going to tithe on even these spices. We're going to cut it all out and divide it into a tenth, and we're going to give that as a symbol of how righteous we actually are. And Jesus says to them, you guys are totally missing the point. There are people who are poor. There are people who are hurting. There's the love of God that needs to be displayed through you, and yet you're busy cutting up your mint. Like, Get with the program here and see what God actually wants to do in this world. You're getting distracted by things that aren't actually important. Now, people who say that tithing is not required for Christians today will look at this passage and say, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees uh, under Old Testament law, and he's talking to them from an Old Testament perspective, and he's actually blasting them for this practice. Christians who think that tithing is still required of Christians today will say, see, look, Jesus didn't negate the tithe. He actually told the Pharisees, you should keep doing that, but you should actually pay attention to these other things as well. In fact, the the language here is Jesus says, it is necessary that you do these things while also continuing with your practice of tithing. So that's what Jesus says in this instance uh, about tithing. I think one of the strongest arguments for people who think tithing is not still required of Christians today is how little it appears in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus talks about it here. Luke mentions it in the parallel passage that he tells of the same story. And Paul kind of goes there, but he never uses the word tithe. And he could have because he talked about generosity and money in certain specific places. But he doesn't really ever talk about a tithe necessarily. The closest he gets is 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2, uh, or 1 to 4 rather. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to set aside... Uh, a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. 
Then when I arrive, I will give letters of instructions to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So what's Paul saying? Well, some of these things remind us of a tithe. There's a certain sum of money in keeping with your income. There's a percentage. There's a regular time when you're supposed to do this. But the caveat here is that this is probably what Paul is talking about, a one-time gift to the church in Jerusalem. The church was struggling and they needed help. And Paul is saying, you need to help your brothers and sisters financially. So set aside a sum of money and I'm going to send it with some of you to Jerusalem when I get there. So is this a tithe or is this not a tithe? Well, there's debate over that. So let's summarize where we've been so far. Tithing is an open-handed issue. Some people will look at these passages and say tithing is absolutely still required, 10% for us today. And some people will say, no, this was an Old Testament thing. But when Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, that means that in his death and resurrection, he actually fulfilled the tithe for us. And so that tithe of 10% is no longer binding. And 10% is a legalistic kind of approach to things. It's an open-handed issue. Um, I want to say that no matter where you, where you would find yourself, based on your study of scripture there, we don't want to let ourselves off the hook of generosity. We don't want to be people who sit here and say, well, the tithe isn't required of me, so I don't actually need to be generous. No, instead, we actually need to say, what does generosity require of me? What ought I be giving in response to grace. In fact, one person is quoted as saying, the wildly generous disciple doesn't talk about a strict definition of tithing because they never intend to stop giving there. For, for some of us who are more wealthy, a tithe of 10% is actually too little. We ought to be giving more than that. So, my opinion, if there's a continuum between not tithing and tithing, I would stand somewhere just center of, yes, we should take on this practice. But I don't believe that so strongly that I'm going to say to you that if you're not tithing, you're being disobedient to God. I will go so far as to say if you're not generous, you're being disobedient to God. But I don't know that a strict definition of a tithe um, meets that standard. I would fall on this side of things a little bit, though, because I think it is a good standard for us to shoot for, 10%. I think it's a good way of creating a standard that, that we can aspire to no matter what our level of income might be. It's a stretching goal. But we have to be on guard for legalism. Okay, so if you are a tither, if 10% has been your practice all throughout your life or for however many years, I want to say to you, uh, well done, first of all, and thank you. I affirm you for that practice. But we have to be on guard that there's no pride, right? That's a pharisaical attitude to say, well, I'm a tither and those non-tithing people are below me, right? That's not a helpful attitude. In fact, it's the wrong attitude to take. So if that's your practice, well done. I affirm that in you, but let's not be legalistic about it. If you're not in the practice of tithing, I want to go through a few principles of generosity here that apply to all of us. But I want you especially to ask yourself, what is the Lord saying to me about what's required of me in terms of generosity? And I'm talking financial generosity because one of the ways that we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root in our lives is that we're radically detached from our possessions and freely share with those who have need. So I'm going to give us four principles, but first I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul talks about generosity very specifically, starting in verse 6. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of this service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So based on that and the other passages we've read, here's four principles for generosity. Number one is plan ahead and live with margin. Plan ahead and live with margin. We saw way back in the story of Cain and Abel that the principle of the first fruit is important when it comes to giving. That, that we're supposed to give off the top, not with what's left over. Because we all know that if you wait till whatever's left over to give that, there's probably not going to be very much, if anything, there. This is why tithing or generosity is an act of trust. If I give the first 10% or 5% or 15%, am I going to trust that God will provide the needs with whatever is left over? This means that we have to live with margin. It means that we have to live in such a way that, that we can have this money to give away and to be generous with. And when extra needs come up, such as flooding in our community, there's money that we have that we can be generous with. Uh, Ron Blue, a financial planner, says, we plan for retirement, we plan for starting a business, or we plan for funding our children's education, but not many have a plan for giving. There will always be unlimited ways to use limited resources, and unless we plan ahead, we will only be able to give the leftovers, if anything. Even an increase in our salaries won't make a difference, because needs always expand to meet income. So we plan ahead, we live with margin. Second is a question, uh, where should we give? And I want to present this uh, with a very clear uh, comment up front that I, I am talking about my own personal opinion on this part. Um, I, I don't know that the scriptures are clear enough for me to say this with biblical authority, but this is my best understanding of how the scriptures present this. I believe that the tithe ought to be given to the local church as the first priority. Now, you might say, well, you have an ulterior motive in saying that because the church pays your salary. Uh, and there's actually some scriptural precedents for that, that people who have devoted themselves to the work of ministry for the good of the church should be compensated for it so that they don't have to work a second job. You can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But my goal is loftier than that. Um, it occurs to me that if every Christian gave 10% of their income to the local church, what, what would we be capable of doing with that? Now, I know the church has not always been a very good steward of money, so I get that. But in a perfect world, if we all gave 10%, our, our church budget right now is just a little under a million dollars. If everyone gave 10%, what would our church budget be? Would it be double or triple or five or 10 times that amount? How many millions of dollars are we talking about? Look at some of the larger churches around our area. If everyone gave 10%, how many tens of millions of dollars are we talking about 
when that happens. There was a, a study in the U.S. that found that if every Christian tithed 10%, faith organizations would have an extra $139 billion every year. Think about what could be done with $139 billion. I saw an in interesting uh, interaction on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Some uh, uh, organization that deals with world relief tweeted that if Elon Musk gave 2% of, of his wealth, which equals $6 billion, world hunger could be eradicated completely. So Elon Musk is active on Twitter and likes to stir the pot a little bit. So he saw this and he responded and he said, if you can lay out a plan on this Twitter feed as to how my $6 billion will eradicate world hunger, I will sell stock in Tesla and I'll write the check right now. <laughs> now, I think he was trying to stir the pot a little bit and was a little skeptical that that was going to do it. But if $6 billion would solve world hunger, maybe it's 12 or $20 billion would solve world hunger. If Christians were tithing 10% to the local church, we could take care of that, no problem. Think about all of the things we could do around our world to, to, to do good, to bring relief to people who are oppressed, to bring justice, to, to provide uh, relief to people who are struggling for a variety of reasons. Now, money doesn't solve every problem, of course, but we could go a long way in showing the love of Jesus in practical ways. In that way. So there's my bias a little bit there, um, that if we gave, first of all, to the local church, we could fund all kinds of things. We could support so many missionaries to go around the world, all faith organizations. We, we could finance all of that stuff to do wonderful things in our world. So I believe the priority is the local church, and, and this is why we live with margin, because then if there are other needs that come up, we can give on top of that um, to fund those other needs. Now, there might be times, like in times of a flood, where we want to redirect our money elsewhere, and I think that's okay too. Um, so, that's the second thing, where to give. The local church is the first priority. Thirdly, don't wait until you have more to give. Don't wait until you have more to give, because that's not how it works. There's actually some studies that have been done on this. One of them said that people with a salary of less than $20,000 are eight times more likely to give than someone who makes $75,000. Or another study found that people who make less than $25,000 uh, give away approximately 4% of their income compared to people who make more than $150,000 who give away only 2.7% of their income. You know, Jesus illustrated this in one story. There was a person, rich person, who came to the temple and made a big show about putting a large amount of money into the treasury box. And then a woman came by who was very poor and very meekly and kind of hidden away, put in two coins. And Jesus said, that woman gets it. She has put in all she had to live on. Whereas that rich guy, he didn't really suffer very much because of what he gave. The woman gets it. Give with what you have. Don't wait until you have more to become generous. And then fourth, experience the joy of giving. Did you notice as we read 2 Corinthians 9 there, how many times the word thankfulness came up? And it was thankfulness from other people to you when you're generous, but it was also this thankfulness that erupts in us when we are generous. And Paul, after he talks about being financially generous in verse um, 15, he, he erupts in this praise of thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's talking about how we should be generous and be giving gifts. And then he says, thanks be to God for his gift to us. Because it's actually that gift that motivates our giving. It's a thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. That he has sacrificed himself for us. 
on the cross, that he has made a way for us to experience salvation, that he's forgiven us for our sin. This is the gift of God. And when we've really internalized that, when we've really understood it, when we've actually grabbed hold of it, then we become generous with what we have and we give and we give and we give because we trust God to provide for us and we're just so overwhelmed with gratitude for what he has done for us that we give back to him. God's grace leads us to give. One person said, what if tithing is not the goal of a rules-based life, but actually the beginning point for a wildly grace-filled life? God's grace motivates us to give. So it's with that in mind that we actually want to turn our attention to communion. So if you have the elements ready with you at home, you can grab them now. I want to read a passage from Exodus chapter 11 as we begin, which it's not a passage that's usually tied to communion. Now, communion is the practice uh, that Jesus gave to us 2,000 years ago, where we remember his death and resurrection, when we remember how his body was broken by eating bread, and we remember his blood that was shed by drinking juice or wine. Jesus commanded us to continue to observe this meal until he returns again. So if you're trusting the Lord Jesus as your Savior today, I invite you to participate with us. Now, Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 1, uh, and then continuing uh, into verse 2, and then jumping down to verse 11. This is, what, uh, this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether humans or animals. Okay, this is the principle of first. The first one belongs to the Lord. Verse 11, after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Okay, what are we talking about there? Why are we breaking a neck and why are we redeeming things in this way? Uh, In the Old Testament, a donkey was an unclean animal. This meant that it was not fit to be offered as a sacrifice and the people were not supposed to eat it. And yet they were still supposed to give the firstborn to the Lord. And so in order to redeem this unclean animal, they had to take a clean animal and sacrifice it in its place. So a lamb was a clean animal. This was one that the Israelites could sacrifice and it was one that they could eat. So what we're seeing in verse 13 there is we need to redeem this donkey, which is an unclean animal, and we're going to do so with a clean animal. The clean animal is going to lose its life in place of this donkey so that it can be redeemed. So let me ask you two questions based on that. When, when you were born, spiritually speaking, were you clean or were you unclean? Well, the scriptures tell us that we were unclean, that we were born into sin, that we have a sin nature that separates us from God. So then let me ask you this. Was Jesus clean or was he unclean? Well, as the Son of God, the sinless, perfect Son of God, he was clean. So when Jesus goes to the cross, people in the Old Testament with this understanding of the law immediately go, oh, Jesus is the clean lamb that is sacrificed for the unclean. He is redeeming those who are unclean by a sacrifice of his life. So we say with Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But we also see in in the act of Jesus going to the cross that, that Jesus himself 
was the firstborn son of God. He was God himself, but he was the firstborn son of God. God gave Jesus as the sacrifice for us. And so when God asks us to return a percentage of our income financially to him, he's not actually asking us to do something he's not done himself because he gave 100% of himself on our behalf. And when we understand and internalize this gift that has been given, we become radically generous people. So as we approach communion today, let's remember this gift that God has given to us and commit ourselves to responding with generosity in return. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you have given to us. We are humbled that you went to the cross on our behalf. We're thankful that because of your death and resurrection, we have fellowship with you. We have eternal life. We have forgiveness of our sin. Thank you that you have redeemed us. You have made us clean so that we can have fellowship with you. And so it's with gratitude today that we eat this meal. So let's take the bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he distributed it around the table. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup after supper and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, we are thankful, and we commit ourselves to following you with all of our hearts because of what you have done for us. Thank you for your gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.